for me, the 2020 will go down in history as a landmark pivotal year for the oil and gas sector as well as the coal sector. A growing number of financial institutions are starting to turn their backs on the fossil fuel sector. And it's a trend that accelerated this year despite all of the turbulence. We look at why 2020 could be a turning point for fossil fuels globally in this episode of Political Climate. The latest in a special series we're calling Ditched on fossil fuels, money flows, and the greening of finance. I'm Julia Piper, your host and producer of the Political Climate Podcast, presented by the USC Schwarzenegger Institute. 2020 is shaping up to be a pivotal year for fossil fuel divestment. Despite economic disruptions caused by the coronavirus pandemic, a growing number of countries, companies, and financial institutions are committing to quit coal and are beginning to ditch oil and gas projects too. Plummeting clean energy costs and increasingly risky fossil fuel investments are accelerating the divestment trend. As of October, more than 50 globally significant financial institutions had announced policies to exit drilling in the Arctic and or exploration of the oil sands in Alberta. Almost half of those commitments came in 2020, according to the Institute for Energy Economics and Financial Analysis, or AIFA. In this episode, I speak to AIFA's Tim Buckley about what's driving the acceleration in fossil fuel divestment around the world, including in historically coal-dependent economies like China and India. Before we get into that conversation, remember to subscribe to Political Climate wherever you get podcasts so you can catch all episodes in our Ditch series, as well as our regular Thursday shows with my co-hosts Brandon Hurlbutt and Shane Skelton on energy and climate politics and policies. You can also find episodes in this Ditch series on the Our Daily Planet website. Simply search for the Ditched Archives and remember to sign up for the Our Daily Planet newsletter so you can catch all of our shows. We're also on Twitter at poly, P-O-L-I underscore climate if you want to send us some feedback. But now, without further delay, here's my interview with Tim Buckley about whether 2020 will prove to be a tipping point in the energy finance transition. My name is Tim. I am Director of Energy Finance Studies for Australasia and South Asia for AIFA, and AIFA is the Institute of Energy Economics and Financial Analysis. We focus on the nexus of the energy finance and climate space. In Australia, because climate is such a politically loaded phrase, I would generally call it the energy finance technology nexus. But at the end of the day, what we are looking at is the financial market's response to technology and economic changes in the energy space. Now, climate is, is a core part of that. It's certainly part of our mandate to accelerate the transition to a profitable and sustainable energy system. But finance is a very amoral uh, structure. And so at the end of the day, what we're trying to do is look for opportunities to better educate the financial markets so that they better incorporate the financial risks associated with climate change. And so therefore, to some degree, acknowledging externalities 
of the existing fossil fuel industry is the big key issue. And then the other side of that is acknowledging the dramatic ongoing and uh, surprisingly bullish deflation that we're seeing in new technologies like solar, like batteries, like electric vehicles. And so if people underestimate the rate of deflation, then they overestimate the longevity of the incumbent industry. And as that realisation dawns that they have got the their forecast wrong, you end up with stranded assets. Just to clarify there, deflation meaning like the prices for these new technologies are going so low and the market opportunity for them is increasing so quickly that these older resources, the incumbents, the coal, oil and gas resources of the world may become, as you said, stranded assets. They may just not be viable economically any longer. Is that right? That is correct. So deflation is an unusual concept. I and mean, We've lived for the last majority of the last century in an inflationary world where every year prices either are flatlining or going up over time. And what we're seeing is the technology improvements combined with the economies of scale of manufacturing ever larger volumes drives a decline in prices on a very consistent and very uh, aggressive basis over time. And we probably a way to explain that would be to talk about Moore's law in computers. So the computer chips have what's called a Moore's law. Now, it's not a, a law of science or it's not a legal outcome. It is a rule of thumb that says computer silicon chips will get um, will double in capacity or halving costs every two years. And so that is what's driven the uptake of iPhones. That's what's driven the uptake of um, portable computers. And that's what's transformed the world's information sector over the last two decades. So there's the law that uh, I would refer to in solar is called Swanson's law that says that with, with every doubling of capacity of production of a product like solar, you see a dramatic multi um, 20, 25% decline in the cost of manufacturing per unit of output. And therefore, when the costs are dropping dramatically, the price goes down. And we saw that overnight uh, in India. The price of solar hit a new record low in November 2020. Uh, need to put a date on that because we were only talking about the last record low that was set six months ago. The price six months ago was 2.36 rupees per kilowatt hour. Today, it is two rupees. So in the space of six months, We've just seen a billion dollar solar tender run by the Indian government and the prices that they've achieved are 15% lower than where they were just six months ago. I find that case study in India super interesting because I was there at the beginning of 2020, uh, just a couple of weeks before it seems like the world crumbled amid coronavirus. And I was there to do a reporting project. And suddenly the information was sort of out of date uh, as, you know, governments scrambled with the COVID response. And it looked like clean energy agendas were going to be thrown out the window or that, you know, fossil fuels could actually get some help through government stimulus programs as governments sought to keep people employed amid economic struggles caused by the pandemic. It looked like they could maybe give some handouts to fossil fuel companies to just keep people employed amid all this turbulence. But in India and elsewhere, I know that Aifa is tracking this. It's turning out that 2020 may actually not be 
so bad for the energy transition. And in fact, this trend is accelerating. Um, I do want to come back to India specifically, but could you set the higher level? I know you wrote recently about why 2020 is turning out to be a pivotal year for fossil fuel exits. So what are you seeing there? Yes, it, it was interesting. The IEA, the International Energy Agency, in April said that, uh, or they suggested that the pandemic could potentially slow the energy transition. And about three months later, they had to do a mea culpa and come out. And so, in fact, well, the data shows exactly the opposite. And what they highlighted was that the consumption of coal in 2020 had dropped six, seven, eight percent. The consumption of LNG and gas had dropped six, seven, eight percent. The consumption of oil had dropped six, seven, eight percent. The carbon emissions globally had dropped eight percent. And in fact, the only energy source that had seen an increase in consumption and production was renewables, and that was up 8%. And so the mere culpa the IEA made, they actually now acknowledge that 2020 has accelerated the transformation. And I think it's accelerated with every month. Start with the facts. The facts and the data shows that uh, renewables have accelerated their penetration of energy markets and fossil fuels have accelerated their retreat. Now, like the IEA, if you go back a year ago, the International Energy Agency was saying, look, solar is going to be a profoundly disruptive technology. And they forecast that solar deflation, so solar costs would drop about 4% every year for the next 40 years. So on a 40-year view, solar was going to become dirt cheap it was going to undermine the competitiveness of every other technology available in the energy space, and it would cause a major energy disruption and put us on a path to decarbonisation. But that was a 40-year forecast. We wrote at the time that their absolute end forecast was spot on. They were just out by two decades. In other words, what they were saying would happen in 2050 and 2060 would in fact happen in 2030. And we were wrong. It's probably happening in 2025 now. So we were underestimating the rate of deflation, as I think every analyst and every forecaster in the world has done in this sector. And okay, maybe there's someone who got it right, and I don't know who they are. I've not seen any references. Um, I've been talking about massive, unexpectedly aggressive, rampant global deflation for eight years in a row. Every presentation I've given for eight years, and I've given hundreds every year, has started with a slide saying there is rampant, ongoing, massively unexpected deflation, and the numbers constantly surprise me. So um, sure, there might be someone who, who got the forecast right, but what it means to me is 99.9% .9 of the world got it wrong. The financial markets got it wrong. The IEA got it totally wrong. Like They were the absolute laggard in the room. And... Uh, so that is profoundly good news for the world because it's profoundly important that we have a livable planet. So if I sort of maybe summarise, why is 2020 a pivotal year? I think there are probably, and I'm not a scientist, I'm a financial analyst in the energy markets, uh, but my reading is that the pandemic made a system shock it created a major global pause that no one was expecting, and it forced us to recognise that the scientists are generally right and that if we're going to rely on experts to deal with a global pandemic, 
then we probably should also accept that the scientists are probably right when it comes to climate change. And so I think that connection, that the pandemic is a sort of minor version of climate change, and I say minor knowing 2020 has been a horrific year for most of the world, but the reality is climate change could have been far, far worse. And I think Australia got a taste of that. California got a taste of that this year. Well, I mean, Australia had literally half the country on fire for about four months of the year. We lost 12 million hectares or acres of, of land. We lost 3 billion animals. Uh, like the numbers and the, the damage was catastrophic. And so maybe the wake-up call was a lot of the incumbent industries have talked about the cost of change is too high. Now, that's the incumbent industries preaching a strategy of delay and obfuscation and denial. But what we realised in 2020 is the cost of inaction is too high and the opportunities of action are actually profoundly bullish for massive investment, employment and export opportunities that will come about from embracing the new technologies of the future that also happen to be zero emissions. I think you set it up there very well, because this is why we are doing this series that looks really at the money piece, because I think you know, people talk about technology and what's new in wind and solar and batteries and microgrids and all of that. And then there's the climate space and advocacy and policy and how to craft the legislation and, and regulations to, uh, you know, guide the industry. But what's amazing now is that the dollars and cents are there, too. The, the economics make sense for the technology now in, in, in new and exciting ways. And as a result, the financial sector is now responding. So what's interesting there, and this is to pull from your research, I understand that according to IEFA, 2022 date has seen 56 global banks, insurers, pension funds, and asset managers announce new or expanded coal exit policies. 143 globally significant financial institutions in total have now made those types of commitments. And you're now seeing that oil and gas is getting brought into this discussion, too. So not just coal, something we know is the dirtiest, but now increasingly oil and gas, which is a huge sector. So could you actually just talk about that trend? It's certainly that's IEFA's focus to look at how is the financial market responding to these changes, whether they're political changes, regulatory changes or economic changes in terms of the relative cost competitiveness of different technologies. So regardless of what force, we try and evaluate what is the financial market response. And as you say, we started tracking three years ago formal coal exit policies by what we would call globally significant financial institutions. So it's a, an arbitrary definition we apply, but it's asset managers with more than $50 billion of assets under management, and it's banks and insurers with more than $10 billion of assets. So just a, an arbitrary way of, of looking at the, the, the players that are globally significant um, because they're the ones that are going to pivot the most capital. And so once they get on board, they will move the market. So what we've tracked is 100, as you said, 143 globally significant financial institutions that have formal coal mining and or coal-fired power plant exclusion, divestment or restriction policies. So the key point is they've got to be formal, they've got to be on their website, they've got to be endorsed by the board. The second thing is that they are 
about restricting the flow of capital to the coal sector. And normally that restriction, if they're an insurer, that would be restricting their provision of insurance and also restricting the supply of investments that the insurers actually run. So investors run a massive investment book in protection of the payments that they'll have to make down the track. If it's banking, then it's a restriction on their lending policy or an outright exclusion. Uh, if it's an asset manager, then it's a an exclusion, a divestment, a screening out, a carbon structure, something that specifically targets material reduction in capital flows to the coal sector. And so that's been an ongoing process. And one of the things we've noticed is that once a financial institution makes a formal commitment, usually within one or two years, you see them revisit the policy, acknowledge that the policy was largely greenwashed to start with and it had too many uh, holes in it such as you could drive a, a Mack truck through it, and they start to tighten it up because one of the key prerequisites of that policy is an acknowledgement of the science of climate change. It's an acknowledgement of the Paris Agreement. And if you are acknowledging that the Paris Agreement is ultra important to everyone on this planet, if you're acknowledging that you want to invest in alignment with the Paris Agreement, the idea that you're funding new coal power plants or coal mines is diametrically opposed to what you're saying. And so the hypocrisy of a statement saying we align with Paris and we continue to invest in coal, but just not all coal, uh, that doesn't really stack up. It doesn't pass the hypocrisy test. It doesn't do anything for the planet. And so what we see is a rapid tightening up of the credibility of the policies. Now, this process has started back in sort of 2015 when the World Bank first announced them coal exclusion policies and when the Norwegian Sovereign Wealth Fund started announcing them. And at the time, one institution, two institutions are irrelevant. But what starts to become very relevant is that a whole lot of other financial institutions have followed on it, they've replicated it, they've enhanced it, and now we have a critical mass of financial institutions in the coal sector to the point where it's almost every week a coal CEO is saying, we now do not have access to capital, be it insurance, debt or equity, from the normal markets and we are just being capital starved. Now, that's great because the world needs to do without coal and so capital is actually no longer willing to deploy into industries that are effectively stranded. They're unviable in a world aligned with Paris and so uh, the financial capital is, is fleeing. I was going to say starting to flee. I think um, if we would... If we were talking six to 12 months ago, I would use that phrase, but I think we're in the end game. The pivotal point was, in fact, BlackRock. Now, a lot of environmentalists won't like me talking about BlackRock in a positive sense. BlackRock's still got a long way to go in their alignment with Paris. But the announcement by Larry Fink in January 2020, I think will go down in the climate movement as an absolute pivotal moment. Because Larry Fink and BlackRock put out Larry Fink's letter to all CEOs that BlackRock invests in, said there is a fundamental reshaping of finance coming and it's mainly about economics. I mean, we have a fiduciary duty to invest and to protect 
and maximize returns, so protect capital and maximize returns. So we're looking at it from an economic lens, but we can see the economics of coal are no longer viable. And oh, by the way, we will do the right thing morally as well, but only because the economics don't support doing the wrong thing. And they actually make that argument very clear. Nari Fink's letter is all about the economics and, oh, by the way, we'll pat ourselves on the back and take a, a moral responsibility um, accolade as well. We talked about that actually in an earlier episode in this series with Justin Gway at the Sunrise Project. Uh, and he did note, however, that there's always more to the story, looking at what BlackRock has actually done. And there's lots to follow there around how these types of commitments roll out in the real world. But I just want to stick on coal for one moment because this episode is about looking internationally beyond the U.S. a little bit. And one thing I think people hear about on this talk track is like, oh, well, it doesn't matter what the U.S. does on climate writ large because China and India will always uh, have coal or Indonesia will have coal and they're not transitioning. So why should we do it? So just to follow up on what you said so far, you're saying that coal, even in those places where there is still a lot of coal, is being starved for capital. And as a result, coal is in decline in the Chinas and Indias and Indonesias of the world. Absolutely. And I can say that in um, the end of 2020 categorically, uh, but it's interesting you say that. I mean, it doesn't matter what America does, it matters matter what China. In Australia, we do that as well. Australia is only 1.5% of world emissions. Uh, it doesn't matter that we're five times the global average per capita emissions. Um, we just abrogate our responsibility to do anything because it, the only person that matters is China, right? Uh, this is a global problem. It is a global systemic risk. And everyone is responsible and, every, and everyone is needed to help solve the problem. So abrogating responsibility and blaming another country is, in my view, an absolute abrogation of responsibility yourself. And so that would be my starting point. The second point is, who is to say Indonesia, China or India is not as responsible or more responsible than America or Australia? I'd in fact argue they're probably showing more global responsibility um, okay, some of your listeners might challenge that in terms of taking action. And so rather than casting stones at other people or blaming other people and therefore saying, oh, we shouldn't bother because they're not going to, um, you actually need to understand they're actually embracing the massive opportunities that come from this. Now, um, when whenever I'm in India, I am very, very cognizant of the common but differentiated responsibilities principle of the Paris Agreement. It is America and Australia and Europe and to a less degree China that caused the problem. It is not the developing world that caused the carbon emissions problem. It is the cumulative impact of 100 years of industrialization in the West. And so the why would we, the West, now expect the emerging nations to wear the cost of um, solving the problem we created. Now, the Paris Agreement is predicated on that common but differentiated responsibilities. Now, having put that major principle on the table, I'm now going to move it to the side because at the end of the day, what India has said is we didn't cause the problem, but by the way, we can invest in the solution and the solution is now the low-cost um, source of energy, and it's actually the best source of energy for us anyway. So the economics actually suggests we should actually accelerate decarbonisation of our industry. And that's why I started by mentioning that solar tender in India. 
Solar is now by far the lowest cost source of new energy in India. India's economy is going to see its energy consumption double over the next decade or two, and they want to enhance energy security, which means they want to ideally use domestic energy support supplies. And they also have a massive air pollution problem, so they want to reduce the air pollution issues. They have a massive water security issue, water scarcity issue that's growing with every year. So they want to use energy sources that are least taxing on their water supply. By the way, solar ticks every one of those boxes. Oh, and by the way, it's, uh, it doesn't emit carbon dioxide or methane. And so there's just an ancillary benefit that it helps solve the world's climate crisis. So when Prime Minister Modi talks about being a world leader in renewable energies and India investing in 450 gigawatts of renewables by 2030, that is great. And there's a whole confluence of factors that all are pointing at India embracing the opportunities. And India is embracing those opportunities with both hands and is moving dramatically ahead of their Paris Agreement commitments of 2015. So to that point, state-owned Coal India has just announced this month that it plans to set up, it plans to deploy around three gigawatts of solar capacity by 2024. This is the state-owned coal company (laughs) deploying solar. Um, I believe that Coal India is also mandated to become a net zero carbon company. So that's interesting and speaks to, I think, what you're talking about here. My one question is, is Coal India doing it just because of the policy piece? You mentioned Prime Minister Modi talking about the opportunities in clean energy, or is it because Coal India just cannot find people to finance it, to bring the finance piece back in here? Could they not find enough capital so now they're being forced to diversify? Or is it more the policy that's driving this? Or would you say it's an equal balance of both? Um, We have not tracked a single financial institution that has a formal coal exit policy in India. There are global financial institutions that do, but there is no divestment movement, so to speak, in India. So it's not financial divestment that is driving Coal India's moves, but there are very, very strong drivers there. One is the political alignment. Coal India is the biggest coal company in the world, like by a factor of 50% by volume. Uh, It is government-owned, majority government-owned. So when Prime Minister Modi has an objective to drive deflation in the energy system and to drive a doubling of the energy supply of India, and to drive 450 gigawatts of renewable energy investment by 2030, as a major state-owned enterprise, Coal India is aligning with the Prime Minister of India to deliver on the objectives that the Prime Minister of India has set them. So I'm not suggesting Coal India is exiting the coal industry the way America and Australia is. What I'm saying is that Coal India is delivering what Prime Minister Modi has asked them to deliver on, which is affordable reliable domestic energy solutions to help drive the economic growth of India. But when we throw in the words economic and low cost, you you only have to spend one minute looking at the cost of solar in India to realise solar is now the low cost source of supply for India. It's also a domestic source of supply. And so for, and it has been now for four or five years. India is one of the most uh, leading countries in the world 
in terms of having solar and wind below the cost of coal. And it has been there since 2017. So that's why I spend most of my time studying India, because it's the economics of energy supply that are actually driving this. So is India moving? Categorically. Is China moving? Categorically. I could go through the same sort of logic to say, I would argue China is actually embracing the investment opportunities, the employment opportunities, the trade and export opportunities, the technology opportunities that new zero emissions industries of the future are bringing the world. And China is the world leader in that. So we would be very deluded to think that um, just because America's current president is denying the science of climate change and he's denying the Paris Agreement, just like the Australian prime minister is doing the same thing, it doesn't mean our trade partners or the biggest countries in the world are abrogating their fiduciary duty just because we are. So to that point, China, Japan and South Korea all recently committed to net zero carbon emissions targets, uh, you know, economy wide. So that's just goes to show how this year amid the pandemic, the ambition has not uh, subsided. Of course, the follow through is what we have to watch. But uh, definitely interesting to see these economies outside the U.S. really take a leading role. And I do think India, for all the reasons you mentioned, is so interesting, home to the biggest coal company in the world. And yet there, uh, renewable energy is so cost compelling that it's you even see the coal company embracing it. You see the government embracing it. Uh, my understanding was that that India did try to get some coal tenders happening. They tried to seek some outside financing for, for coal development, but didn't get any financial institutions to bite. I guess maybe domestically there isn't much of a financial push, divestment push, but it seems like they are still feeling the effects of the divestment movement worldwide. Just to close this point, is, is that accurate to say? I think that's absolutely spot on. And so when I say there is no divestment movement in effect in India right now, that does not mean India is not being starved of capital in the fossil fuel sector. Far from it, it's being absolutely starved because the domestic banks are losing their shirts left, right and centre over bad loans to stranded assets in the fossil fuel sector. I mentioned energy security is probably the single most important driver of any country. And so Prime Minister Modi's number one objective is to enhance India's energy security. Now, he would define that as saying using both domestic coal and using an ever-increasing share of domestic renewable energy. And so when Prime Minister Modi offered up 41 coal blocks for private and foreign investors to effectively build some competition for coal India and not one financial institution, not one corporate internationally bid into the tender. The tender was announced last month and not one foreign firm bid into it. And Prime Minister Modi had actually been um, talking that up and saying, oh, people like Peabody and BHP and Rio would actually come in and they would bring a whole lot of investment, a whole lot of expertise, and they would help modernise the domestic coal industry. So there are a whole lot of benefits he was hoping to get. The reality is they've got none of them because foreign capital is not interested in investing in coal full stop. And I think that summarises the point. That's how far we've moved. There is not one foreign investor that bid into, even low ball bid into this tender in India. 
So let's shift to oil and gas because it is kind of a different beast. The divestment movement from coal is a little older. That was the first target of activists, uh, as I understand the evolution of this movement. But now the oil and gas industry is getting involved. And people may know that, you know, as they call it here, natural gas or fossil gas is less polluting or can be uh, than, say, coal or oil. But even now we're seeing that sector come under a a spotlight for its impact on the climate crisis. So can you talk about how you're seeing things evolve and how financial institutions are acting there? And I want to evolve beyond just not financing the most polluting deep water drilling in the Arctic to just more of the general license for these companies. Is there a moment where just the average oil drilling project can't get financing? Or are we still way off from something like that? To me, the... 2020 will go down in history as a landmark pivotal year for the oil and gas sector as well as the coal sector. If you'd asked me five years ago, in fact, if you'd asked anyone at IEFA, we actually proposed hiring our first gas analyst five years ago. And the uh, IEFA's got an American board and they said, oh, but gas is such an important transition fuel. It's really important for the American economy. Uh, We don't want to campaign against gas. Let's go for the weakest link. Let's go for coal. Let's solidify that campaign and then we'll worry about gas later. But you fast forward to today and IEFA, half of IEFA's analysts focus on oil and gas. So that's how far we've taken our thinking. Let me give an example of why Bruce Robinson, our gas analyst, wrote a report in March this year talking about the VW moment for the gas industry. Uh, By that, he's talking about Dieselgate and saying that the gas industry has been called out in 2020 in a dramatic and instrumental way. And so let me just pick up on a word you said, and it's a word I think we all need to really understand. Gas is not as polluting as coal, right? So I accept that in terms of particulates, in terms of NOx and SOx, in terms of um, pollution, gas is a cleaner burning fuel. That I agree with 100%. But where people have confused a cleaner burning fuel is on the emissions. Gas is not necessarily at all a lower carbon emissions fuel than coal. And so the gas industry spent decades on a uh, propaganda and PR war to try and pretend that they're the cleaner burning fuel. And on an emissions basis, it's an outright lie. And I'll say that very deliberately because one of the conventions that we talk about with gas is that methane has to be evaluated on a 100-year view. Now, all of these um, net zero emissions targets by 2050 are 30 years away, not 100 years away. And so when you talk about the half-life of methane, and I'm I'm an energy analyst, a finance analyst, not a a carbon analyst, but the half-life of methane means that methane is 84 times higher carbon dioxide equivalent on a 20 to 30-year view than it is on a 100-year view. And so that simple point, the convention is that we evaluate methane on a 100-year view. Why am I belaboring that point? Because we have 30 years to deal with this problem. We probably have less. We have 10, 20, 30 years. And so on a 10, 20, 30-year view, methane is 84 times worse than carbon dioxide. And so this 
convention that some gas analyst somewhere in the world convinced everyone to use a 100-year view is nothing other than PR spin. Now, the second bit of PR spin they did is they said, oh, we only vent a little bit of methane. It's only a little bit and it's invisible and we don't monitor it. Trust us. We're an industry that deserves trust. Right. Okay, so as soon as you start measuring methane emissions, you find the methane emissions are orders of magnitude higher than the industry has claimed they are. And so when you scratch the surface and say, oh, could you show me how you claimed that methane emissions are less than 2% of total um, gas production? Where's the scientific proof? Where's the study that demonstrates that, oh, we don't have one, we haven't done it, we don't actually monitor it? We, in fact, don't want to monitor it because if we did monitor it, we would know that the methane emissions from the what they call the venting, the fugitive emissions, the leaks, the flaring, and the absolute outright just venting of methane is well above 3%. And so BP at the start of this year acknowledged that globally the methane emissions, the methane venting is probably around 3.2%. Now, as soon as you go above 3%, gas is, fossil gas is more carbon intensive than coal. Now, a Harvard study early this year said that for the Permian Basin, the biggest gas basin in the world, the methane emissions are 3.7%. So at that point, when that Harvard study came out, we should have thrown every textbook on the subject written by fossil fuel lobbyists out the window or burnt them. And so what, what changed in the start of 2020? Satellite tracking of methane. So independent satellites have gone up and are now formally tracking methane down to the nearest square metre, and they can identify exactly how much methane's coming out. Now, why did that happen? Because we realised the methane emissions were going through the roof at a time when the industry said they weren't. And so the reality, the measured scientific reality, didn't accord with what the PR spin of the gas industry had said. Now, I've really just belaboured the point, but that is a massive, massive mea culpa. And so everyone now has to reevaluate the statement that gas is a cleaner burning fuel. Okay, it is a cleaner burning pollution fuel, but it is not a cleaner fuel in terms of carbon emissions. So what we've just decided with globally, what the finance industry has decided is coal is now no longer an acceptable source of energy it is technologically obsolete well the same conclusion is now being reached on gas in my view and are you seeing financial institutions in, internalize that and, and acknowledge that i know that there's a hunger for more data among financial institutions to know where to put their money to make sure that they are indeed living up to the commitments they've made to say align with the paris agreement but are they following through? Does that mean they're willing to take their money out of this industry, as you noted, which is viewed as, at least in the U.S., as so central, you know? And I know that there's, you know, aims to grow gas access in places like India, you know? I've been at conferences where there's discussion about how do you get more gas to places like that? It's cleaner, so to speak. So are you seeing financial institutions accept that uh, gas is, should be treated like coal or is there some resistance there? No, there is huge resistance. The gas industry lobby is far, far more effective and better funded than the coal lobby. And they've also had decades of PR spin to get us all to call it natural gas. I love the fact you introduced it as fossil gas. 
natural gas. What's natural gas? That was to differentiate from town gas, which is actually coal to gas. And so you go back in history, but to me, it's actually a um, marketing spin. We should reference fossil gas and renewable gas. Renewable gas comes from wind and solar or biomass and has zero emissions. Fossil gas has a whole lot of methane emissions and so should be evaluated as methane, not carbon dioxide, 84 times worse than carbon dioxide. Are financial institutions starting to acknowledge this? Absolutely. So six months ago, we noticed that every time we were now seeing updated coal policies, we were generally also seeing policy extension. So the policy starts by saying we acknowledge the Paris Agreement and then they move, I mentioned every year they tighten the policy generally, that's what we've been tracking. And so they then start to say not only we not only do we acknowledge the science of climate change, we actually acknowledge the Paris Agreement. Then the next year they say we actually will align with the Paris Agreement and then they actually realise that that statement's a bit hollow as well. So they say, we will align with the Paris Agreement and we'll agree to work to a one and a half to two degree world. And then in this year, we've seen we will work to a one and a half degree world. So over the last five years, a lot of the statements have gone from hollow rhetoric, which they didn't even know what they meant, to now actually realising that aligning with Paris, aligning to a one and a half degree means re-evaluating every core assumption as it relates to carbon dioxide and methane that they've been making for decades. And so we're starting to see it's, it's, not, it's, a, it's an avalanche uh, of change. So these policies that three years ago talked about divesting thermal coal, then they talked about divesting thermal coal and coal-fired power. And then they talked about ratcheting it up. So they would start by divesting coal if it was 25% of the revenues of the underlying company. And then it became 20%. Then it became 15 and then 10 And if, and if you have any coal by 2026, store brand of Norway will not invest in you. And so what we're now seeing is that same momentum is building in the gas and oil sector. But let's go back to Larry Fink's opening comments, because to me, it's critical. He said, we will divest thermal coal. So BlackRock said that. They divested thermal coal from $1.8 trillion of active funds, debt and equity, with immediate effect. Now, have a look at Exxon's share price. Exxon has underperformed every year for a decade, but this year its shares are down 50%. And then you look at... Peabody is down 90% or 80%. So, okay, thermal coal is virtually dead man walking, but Exxon's just seen its market cap half. Now, the equity market in 2020 is up double digits. Next era energy share price is up 50%. It's massively outperformed. And so Larry Fink two weeks ago pointed to Exxon and next era and said, let's look at the world leaders in terms of the world's biggest investor in renewables is next year energy. Its shares are going through the roof. Let's look at Exxon, the world's biggest climate science denier, the world's biggest investor in fossil fuels. Its shares are going through the floor. That is economic suicide to continue to deny the science of climate change. And so what Larry Fink concluded was there is a tsunami of change in asset allocation as it relates to energy investing globally. So what was a fundamental reshaping of finance in January 2020 
in November, Larry Fink himself said it is a tsunami of change. And I don't think financial investors are willing to stick around in a tsunami of change just so that they can um, prop up their last fossil fuel investment. Well, so we're doing this tour around the world. We've talked about India. We've talked about China, coal, fossil gas uh, here in the U.S., some of the trends that are taking place. Let's just end now with a focus on the European Union. Um, Just recently, the U.K. government's overseas development bank vowed to end fossil fuel financing abroad. Uh, The European Union as a whole is looking at using financial regulation as a way of accelerating this trend that we're talking about. So what should we learn from Europe, which has really been leading here on on moving money out of fossil fuels? And that comes from, you know, a government led initiatives, but also now rippling throughout the financial sector there, which I think is really setting the tone globally. So how would you connect the dots on what's really happening in Europe and what others should take from that? Europe has been a world leader on climate change, uh, the Paris Agreement, and acknowledging the science and trying to push through pressures, uh, measures to solve this. We are seeing financial institutions in Europe absolutely leading. And if you look at who are the big insurers who move first on acknowledging and acting on climate change, it was the European insurance majors that moved first. When the banks have moved, they've moved on coal first. The Nordics in particular have been world leaders. When I look at the policy statements coming out of the European and Nordic financial institutions, they're all now talking about alignment with Paris, alignment with one and a half degrees. And that means moving on all large emission sources, carbon emission sources. And so they have moved their focus way beyond coal. So we saw earlier this year, the European Investment Bank say that come the end of 2021, they will no longer invest and provide capital to any fossil fuel project anywhere in the world. Not a dollar. The EIB will, as of 2021, the end of next year, they will no longer invest in fossil fuels. That's not thermal coal mining. That's all fossil fuels. What we do know is energy systems do take decades to transition. We can't just turn the capital tap off tomorrow. That's actually dangerous. Now, so EIB is taking a leadership position. It's setting the framework of where all globally significant financial institutions need to go. But I think we'll see more of the store brand type of response, which is let's actually reduce our exposure every year for the next five, six years or 10 years and phase it out entirely this decade. And so everyone knows where we're going, but you've got a decade to get ready and we will phase it down. And as Larry Fink said, there's a tsunami of change coming and that capital is going to move very, very rapidly. And it won't just be Europe, it will be global capital that moves. And then, of course, we're seeing the policies in these places in the European Union through their green stimulus and other policies at the national level back all this up and I think add more momentum to exactly what you're saying. Absolutely. I mean, at the end of the day, I come from financial markets and uh, certainly I think most economists would argue that a price on carbon is by far the most efficient mechanism to drive decarbonisation. If you want to actually get material rapid change, you need to price the externality. And that's what Europe's got. Europe spent 10 years stuffing around and they did stuff around pretty badly for a decade, getting a, a 
emissions trading scheme that was comprehensive and effective. But I think the jury is absolutely in. The ETS in Europe is now 100% effective. The price has gone up 500% in the last five, six years. It's expanded and solidified in 2020. It's now 27 euros. So it's approaching 40 US dollars a, a tonne. And it is very much accepted that it will only increase over time. And as you said, the Green New Deal is another major investment in low emissions industries of the future. So global capital, European capital is moving, European policymakers are moving, European corporate leaders are moving, and the financial system is moving. So it is all moving in the right direction. Well, this is a conversation to listen to if you want to feel optimistic about uh, climate action. I think a lot of people here in the U.S. have felt uh, discouraged uh, in recent years. But this is an uplifting conversation with you and looking at these trends here. I I come from the finance world. I I was managing director, uh, head of equity research at Citigroup, the biggest bank in the world at the time. In my time as an analyst, as the head of research at Citigroup, I never once met a politician I never had investors ask me what the politicians were doing. The financial markets have a little bit of disdain because politicians lag. Industry and finance leads, politicians generally lag. You get the occasional leaders like Angela Merkel. They're the unusual ones, Piyush Goyal in India. But at the end of the day, finance is phenomenally powerful and it's moving tens of trillions of dollars of capital every day. There is a tsunami of change. Larry Fink has spoken. Financial markets globally are moving. And when financial markets move, they take days to move, weeks to move, months to move, not years, not decades. So you're right. I am exceptionally bullish. When I talk to my climate scientists, they go, we need to have you bullish because the reality is the science is showing the environment is deteriorating far faster than we thought. But to me, now that everyone is on board and President-elect Biden is the absolute icing on the cake. That is brilliant to have America now leading with the rest of the world all in the same direction. So it is very much to my way of thinking game over. Well, Tim, thank you so much for your time and for breaking all of this down. My pleasure. Nice to talk to you, Julia. For more information about what you heard on this episode, be sure to check our recommended reading notes if you want to find those reports that Tim Buckley mentioned. And finally, another reminder to subscribe to Political Climate if you haven't yet. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify. You can find us there. Hit subscribe and follow along to not only our ditched episodes, but also our regular Thursday shows. For now, I'm Julia Piper. Thanks so much for listening. <laughs>